The Energy Gang is brought to you by Aurora Solar. Aurora is the leader in solar design and sales software with over 5 million projects designed in the platform to date. Aurora is hiring right now across multiple roles, including customer success, marketing, sales, operations, and more. See the open roles and apply to join Aurora. Voted one of the best places to work in 2021 at aurorasolar.com. We're also brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is a leading provider of PV inverter solutions across the world. SunGrow's delivered more than 10 gigawatts of inverters to the Americas alone and 120 gigawatts across the globe. SunGrow is meeting the growing calls for deep decarbonization with constant innovation. Check out SunGrow's inverter models and learn about cutting-edge R&D at sungrowpower.com. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. In 2015, then-Secretary of State John Kerry called the Paris Climate Treaty a tremendous victory. In the years since, $3.8 trillion has flowed into fossil fuels globally. Now, Kerry and other White House officials are focusing on banks and insurers that are still offering a lifeline to new fossil fuel projects. Can they slow the flow of cash? This week, why finance is the main pressure point on climate. Catherine Hamilton is in Arlington, Virginia. Hey, Catherine. Hey, I'm just happy I can run now without a mask on. Is that what the CDC said? Yeah, they said if you're fully vaccinated, you can just whip that mask off outside, which I did yesterday with great joy. <laughs> when Catherine is not running around the streets of Arlington, she is the chair and co-founder of 38 North Solutions. And our guest this week is off running 5,000 feet above sea level in Utah, Justin Gway, how are you? I'm doing great, Stephen. I'm so excited to be with you guys, though I'm missing Jigger Shaw, dear friend Jigger Shaw. Justin is a, a longtime friend of the show. In fact, Justin is one of the first guests we ever had on this podcast way back in 2013. I still remember the joke, the opening line joke, Stephen, which was, I think you asked, what am I wearing for Halloween? And I said, well, I'm coming as the World Bank's plan for addressing energy poverty, so I'm not wearing anything. I still remember that. Still got that right there. <laughs> Justin is the director of global climate strategy at the Sunrise Project. Also, you I think you've electrified not one but two houses. Am I right in that? That's right. I electrified my house in the Bay Area, which was kind of the easy baby step because you can't screw it up in a nice climate like the Bay Area's. And then I, you know, to try to up the degree of difficulty, I did it in Utah in a cold weather climate. Um, yeah. And I, I would say that I'm, I'm never going back. You seem comfortable in there. So I guess electrification does work for kind of sweaty. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's like too much heat. We posted a photo of Nate, the house whisperer, who is our guest a couple episodes ago. And, uh, that it was the, the photo we used to promote the episode. And it was actually Nate, uh, inside Justin's house. So, uh, back in 2013, Justin was at the Sierra Club running its international climate program, and he made the case that lenders were missing this huge opportunity in distributed energy access in emerging markets. And today he's focused on the other side of the issue, which is banks and insurance companies that are still funneling trillions of dollars into new oil and gas projects that will unlock decades of additional heat trapping gases. So today we're going to look at the problem in a few different ways. Number one is how are banks deeply intertwined with fossil fuels and how do we untangle it? Then what are the regulatory tools being used or considered to slow investment? And then what does this mean for international financing? So first up, let's talk about the influence problem at banks. I can remember way back in 2006 when I went to the Renewable Energy Finance Forum on Wall Street and I listened to all these investment bankers talk about why clean energy was so attractive. And it was my first exposure in, from thinking about this as just like an environmental issue to thinking about this as a financial opportunity. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really serious. The people with big money are coming into this. And that bullishness played out. Today, all the major banks are collectively supporting hundreds of billions worth of renewables projects every year. But few of them are giving up on fossil fuels. Nearly $4 trillion has flowed into carbon-heavy energy since 2015. One environmental campaigner speaking to The Guardian recently put it this way, the banks are gorging on donuts and then eating an apple afterwards. And this new analysis from DSMOG, um, a group that is, is backed by Justin's organization, finds that 77% of board directors at the top seven U.S. banks have ties to climate-conflicted groups. 
We'll talk about what that means. Earlier this year, New York University released a study showing that only 7% of board members in the top U.S. companies, which includes many banks, had any climate expertise at all. So what's changed in banking and what's stayed the same and why is that a problem? Catherine, first to you, like what's your read on where the banks are performing on this issue? Yeah, so just on a really baseline level, our carbon budget doesn't really leave much room to increase fossil fuel development. And yet, 35 private sector banks have funded $2.7 trillion since the Paris Agreement into fossil fuels. A lot of oil and gas. Financing for oil and gas has gotten cheaper. Coal, a little less so, but still, Barclays, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley are financing, you know, on a 100 megawatt coal plant in Indonesia with $500 million. So it still persists. And so when you think about, like, what does this mean for them? How are they pricing in the risk of fossil fuels? To some extent, they are for coal, but not really for oil and gas. So, Justin, why is this so much of a focus for you right now? Yeah, it's a it's a very important focus, a very important leverage point. Um primarily because banks are the single largest lenders to fossil fuels, to energy on the planet. And so we're not going to solve this problem unless we're able to reform their lending practices to align with Paris, to align with the net zero goals that are now the topic du jour in uh, the corporate world. As Catherine said, I think what what you see is that if there was a big game-changing global agreement meant to drive action on climate change, somebody seems to have forgotten to tell the banks. Um, they have continued to pour trillions into fossil fuels. Meanwhile, they are investing in clean energy. I don't want to say that they're not, but I think it would be foolish to think of that as any kind of act of heroism or act of leadership, because these are the industries of the future. This is how you make money. They're in the business of making money. And, you know, I, I would have serious questions about their executive leadership if they weren't investing in those industries. So, you know, the, I think the question mark for all of us um, when it comes to whether or not they're truly leading on climate, whether they're truly aligning their behavior is, you know, what are they not doing anymore? Um, and that's where you need to start breaking ties with past clients, you need to stop lending to certain kinds of activities. Um, because even if you know they are becoming increasingly risky, it is true they can still make a buck today uh, by doing that. The question is, um, you know, we're we're running quickly out of time and we just don't we don't have the luxury anymore of allowing them to to get away with this stuff. We we really need to we need to turn off that tap, as many in the activist community say, we need to stop the money pipeline. So if I'm reading the news and I see headlines like Goldman Sachs says it won't finance off uh, drilling in the Arctic, for example, or some banks are saying they're not going to support overseas coal plants, or a bunch of banks are getting together and saying, we're going to establish these mid-century net zero targets. That all seems great to me. That seems like, oh, the financial sector is well in line with what we need to do. So why is that not enough? Yeah, it, because as always, the devil is in the details. Um, so a couple of high-level numbers for everyone. We have over 163 globally significant financial institutions that have a coal exclusion policy. We, you know, they are saying in some way, shape, or form, we won't touch coal anymore. We've got around 60 that say they won't touch oil and gas. But how they define oil and gas and coal is important. And more importantly, what types of financing those policies cover is even more important. And so what you often find with many of those policies is that they're narrowly tailored. So in the um, instance of coal, um, we see a lot of policies early on focused on project finance, but project finance is a very narrow sliver of total financial flows. The vast majority of new plants and new project construction is you know, being financed at a corporate level. So a Wells Fargo, a Chase can say, we won't lend for a new coal plant by itself, but there's not new individual coal plants coming and knocking on the door saying, hey, can we get a loan? What's happening is Duke is coming and knocking on the door and saying, hey, we'd like a corporate loan to finance all of the things we're doing. And there's no distinction. And so you you know, there's these gaping loopholes that money tends to flow through. Uh, and so we need to get those details right. And so there are estimates from groups like Reclaim Finance in France that uh, suggest something like 7% of all of these policies are what they would consider to be Paris aligned, which means we have a lot of momentum. We've got a lot of uh, interest. I think banks are genuinely realizing this is a thing they need to grapple with. 
but we need to get the quality of these policies right if we're going to actually turn off that flow of money. And I would say, you know, it's one thing when it comes to coal. And, you know, as Catherine was mentioning, we are seeing prices rise. Um, loan spreads rise, according to the University of Oxford. They've risen something like uh, 38 to 54 percent over the past decade. So, you know, they are seeing that activity as more expensive or as more risky and hence more expensive. But when it comes to oil and gas, it's just a totally different story. And so if you look at those policies, they're extremely narrowly tailored. They cover only uh, very extreme projects like uh, oil, upstream oil extraction um, for tar sands, for example, or for or in the Arctic, which you know tar sands is something like about one to three percent of total global oil production. Which means if we are seeing these banks announce those policies, and then you know under any illusion that that's going to turn off the tap, turn off the flow of finance for oil and gas expansion globally, you know we're kidding ourselves. Um, so we've got to get a lot more serious about the kind of scope of these policies, what they cover uh, in terms of the entire industry, but also what kinds of like the flavor of money that they cover. It can't just be project finance. We need to cover corporate finance and then. Potentially most importantly, and this will go bridge into the conversation on the boards of these institutions underwriting, because underwriting, which is essentially a handshake deal where a bank arranges a transaction for somebody else, is very lucrative. They carry no long-term risk, and it unlocks huge amounts of debt for expansion. And that is one of the pieces that is rarely covered in any of even the best policies by banks. And so basically, we just need um, we need to get much higher quality policies, we need to cover a lot more of um, the flow of money and the and the total aggregate industry if we're going to really make a difference. Yeah, there are like 100 gigawatts of new gas plants planned in the United States. That's like $100 billion that's needed in finance. And at some point, those will be stranded assets. So it strikes me that this is very a very risky proposition. And I saw you write a piece for Utility Dive, Justin, showing that it's actually getting cheaper to finance natural gas plants. What's that all about? That is a damn good question. I would also like to know what that's all about. Um, so, you know, I think what we hear from financial institutions, people like Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, is that markets are incredibly rational. Uh, they're capable of self-regulation. All they need is better and more information, and they will make the right choice. Uh, and what we've seen is that there has been a growing amount of information um, of all forms, you know, basically giant blinking red lights saying, climate risk this way, steer clear, steer clear. And, you know, if you're uh, an optimist and think that the glass is half full, then you're saying, well, look, that is true when it comes to coal. Prices are rising. And it's true when it comes to clean energy. Prices are falling. But it's not true at all when it comes to oil and gas. And so that same research from the University of Oxford found that the price um, of a loan or the loan spread for a new gas plant in North America has actually fallen 28% over the past decade. So at the exact same time that we have you know, signed a global agreement to deal with climate change, that the depth and breadth of knowledge of the risks both from climate but also to financial institutions has grown, financial institutions have responded and said, oh, okay, well, it's actually uh, less risky today than it was a decade ago to finance a new gas plant. We're going to cough up some money. We're not worried about this at all. And so I think there's a question mark on the rationality there. There's a question mark on the notion that markets are inherently, um, yeah, rational. <laughs> um, but I think, to be honest, I don't think I have a good answer for you for why it's happening. I think the more important point is that it is and that we can't necessarily uh, assume that financial institutions will make the wisest decisions when it comes to climate. Now, one of the factors may be the influence on boards. I referenced this DSmog study showing that 77% of uh, board directors at, at the top seven U.S. banks have ties to climate conflicted groups, and that's oil and gas, that's heavy industry, that's highly polluting industries. And if we look in, in other regions of the world, uh, for example, Canadian banks, there's 82% of board directors on, on Canadian banks uh, have climate conflicted ties. And in the UK, it was 78%. So we have high influence from heavy industry and the oil and gas uh, industry on how these banks are operating and making decisions. Can you walk us through this study and what you think it says about the influence here and how that may play into the choice of these banks to continue investing in these projects? Absolutely. So as you said, I think what the study, the picture the study paints 
is fairly disturbing when it comes to the influence of many of the industries that benefit from bank lending, bank underwriting, um, because thanks in large part to the connections they have at corporate board levels. And so you have, um, for instance, uh, people like Lee Raymond, who is the former CEO of Exxon, who was uh, for a long time the lead independent chair at Chase, the world's largest fossil fuel finance financier, the largest bank in the United States. And I think the concern many in the climate community have is that, and this goes to the question of the rationality of continuing to lend to oil and gas, um, even as we know more and more about the risks, that there may be undue influence from some of those industry ties that is leading to less scrutiny over some of these corporate loans, less scrutiny of some of the corporate relationships they have uh, than they otherwise might get if we were to take you know, a new fresh look with uh, eyes that are enlightened by the vast amount of information we have in 2021. You know, when we talk about the influence of some of those um, board directors, uh, Lee Raymond, again, is a, a very important case in point. You know, he's a notorious climate denier. He has been, uh, at, as the former CEO of Exxon, the head of one of the most um, or the biggest wrecking balls when it comes to anti-climate lobbying, anti-climate activity uh, in the United States. And so it's uh, not a stretch to believe that, you know, he's not going to be particularly forward-looking when he talks about or when it comes to corporate direction for Chase as a whole, let alone what they're going to be doing with their loan books uh, and their financial activity. And so I think what, uh, what that study paints or the, the the upshot of that study is that we need a lot more uh, leadership at the board level. If we're going to actually make the transition to net zero, we're going to need a lot more board, uh, leadership at the C-suite level as well. And I think the biggest um, skepticism many in the climate community have over those 2050 net zero targets, if we're promising um, action 30 years from now, um, and then we have, you know, lots of turnover at the executive level. What matters is what they're gonna do today. And if it's boardrooms that are stocked with former CEOs of oil companies and coal companies, it's just hard to believe that they're going to take the aggressive action that's necessary to turn off that uh, flow of money. So Justin, what does that mean for all of these shareholder votes that they have on climate and these commitments that they make and they're you know, they, all of these, you know, ExxonMobil and BP and Shell and Barclays and all these folks are taking these big votes. How does that play out when your directors are conflicted with the fossil fuel industry? Yeah, I think the question is, do they approach those conversations and those votes with kid gloves, which they might if they've got friends on the other side of that vote, um, as well as friends in the institutions that are supposed to be voting against um, corporate boards. So, I think the the thing to remember is that while we have a, a rich history of shareholder resolutions and investor pressure on companies like Duke and BP and Exxon and and the whole gamut, um, what what activists are trying to do is basically up the ante when it comes to the types of interventions that are happening at uh, companies today. So you know resolutions are kind of a first step, but ultimately, if you look at what the private sector does, if they want to see change at a corporate level, is that they remove boards and they change boards. Um, and so what you're, what we are looking for this shareholder season is some of those biggest banks to you know have actual action at the board level if we're going to see real change. And so some of the votes that this community is focused on are people like Charles Noski at uh, Wells Fargo, uh, who is one of the you know biggest laggards when it comes to big U.S. banks on fossil fuels, um, but also board votes at um, utilities like Duke, who again have had notorious climate deniers on their boards. And so I think um, if banks and other investors are large shareholders in these institutions, if they're large lenders to these institutions, or if they're on the receiving end of uh, board votes to try to, you know, remove um, climate conflicted board members or uh, board members that are just not uh, or who are failing to steer these institutions through uh, a very important energy transition, then, um, you know, that's that's how we're going to get real change is actually uh, removing these these uh failures of leadership, the, removing these board directors and replacing them with people who are climate hawks, who, you know, really understand the urgency of the situation. It seems easy to identify the climate deniers or climate skeptics or the people with very explicit fossil fuel ties. But there's a whole 
range of folks who may have spent their careers in fossil fuels or industry who are now the climate converted. And I'm imagining people like our very own Jigger Shah, who spent a lot of his early career in the oil industry, or Kathy Zoy, who's the CEO of EVGo, who's you know, really devoted to fleet electrification, but spent a lot of her career in the fossil fuel industry. Or Brian Dees, who is the director of the National Council on Economic Advisors, who's a real climate champion, but also, you know, disliked by many in the environmental community for his ties to BlackRock. And and so I just, I wonder how you start to parse out these folks who have spent some of their careers or a lot of their careers in fossil fuels who are now actually believers that they can transition these banks and corporates. I think you're pointing to something that's important, which is that there needs to be nuance in that conversation. But I think it's hard to get to a place where you have a nuanced conversation when you still have climate deniers um, on these boards. Uh, It's very difficult to say, oh, well, you know, there's shades of gray here when you have just blatant examples that people are worried about that they're trying to remove. Um, But I think the other thing that I would say is that there would be a lot more goodwill towards people like that, if you are seeing more legitimacy in the climate commitments these banks are making today, and in, more importantly, in the loan volumes and the you know flow of money coming out off of their books. And so if you were, if we in the climate community were starting to see more near-term immediate exclusions of fossil fuels, of coal, oil, and gas, if we were starting to see more rapid transition from banks, I think there wouldn't be as much concern about you know people with different types of backgrounds that may appear on paper to be conflicted. Um, but the reality is, because these institutions are still, frankly, a part of the problem, um, it's difficult to give too much um, uh, leeway, too much credit to uh, people who are theoretically there to change the institution. You know, at the end of the day, money talks, and that's what we're focused on. Aren't these banks facing a big deadline in November at Glasgow at the Conference of Parties when they have to actually say whether their their policies and practices are aligned with a 1.5 degrees Celsius goal? And and if they don't, if if they're shown that they're that they don't, is there any sort of accountability? So the problem we have right now is that all of the commitments, all of the action that we've seen to date from banks and other financial institutions has been voluntary. And there are fundamental limits to voluntary corporate action uh, for solving any type of problem, let alone something as big as climate change. So there is no fundamental accountability that Glasgow or the COP provides other than, you know, the public shame of the global community. But I will say that what we have seen in historical trends, what we've seen in the data around coal exclusion policy announcements is that they are largely driven by two things, I would say, two or three things. One is large political moments. So we saw a whole wave of exclusion policies announced in the run-up to Paris. We expect and have seen a whole wave of announcements in the run-up to Glasgow. So I think we will see a lot more voluntary commitments, which is important. It creates momentum. It creates space for policymakers to act. And it creates a narrative and a new norm that you know certain things like coal are no longer acceptable. But there is, as I said, a fundamental limitation in terms of where the rubber hits the road and and who is around to play the cop on the beat if they continue, as they have done since Paris, to lend to these industries. Right here is where we take a pause to talk about the companies that bring you this show for free. We're brought to you by Aurora Solar, the leader in solar design and sales software, with over 5 million projects designing the platform to date. You can confidently design and quote systems from your desk, generate bankable shade reports that are accepted by major rebate authorities and utilities. And the commercial suite at Aurora includes design and financial analysis tools custom built for C&I projects. Say goodbye to messy spreadsheets and PowerPoints. Aurora takes all the information from your solar designs and simulations, calculates financial returns for loans, leases, PPAs, and cash payments. See open roles at Aurora and apply to join. Voted one of the best places to work in 2021 at aurorasolar.com. We're also brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. In the past year, SunGrow joined RE100 with a commitment to switch its global power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. Beyond ensuring its factories are powered by solar, SunGrow has invested in electric buses to move staff around its facilities in China, earning China's national standard for green factories. It is also innovating across its R&D task force, pushing the boundaries 
ways of innovation to deliver practical solutions for cutting-edge solar projects everywhere. To learn more, visit sungrowpower.com. Suddenly, climate risk in the world of money is a big deal in the world of politics and policy. In 2020, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, a federal regulator of financial derivatives, said that $4 trillion in global wealth could be lost due to stranded investments. In fact, just last month, the organization's chairman set up a climate risk unit. And as we discussed in December on this show, the Biden team is going all in on a strategy to make climate risk disclosure a core part of financial regulation. Now, John Kerry, who's the special envoy on climate, is reportedly leaning on his connections at banks to get them to make stronger commitments in the lead up to Glasgow. And some of our listeners thought that we were actually overly bullish on the impact of risk disclosure in our previous episode. Uh, So and I, I think Justin was probably one of them. So let's talk about what it will do. What are the limitations? How do we go further? And what are the policy or regulation tools we actually have now that might help us regulate banks around this issue. So the Biden team is set to issue a sweeping executive order on this, and we're going to have more details to judge the impact. Justin, what do we know now about what's coming? So what we know is largely drawn from some limited reporting done by Politico, uh, which is that there's an upcoming executive order, which is going to cover a number of different things, but probably most important for this conversation, it will direct Treasury Secretary Yellen, who is uh, the position in, in the lead position or the coordinating position for the FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, to coordinate a report within 180 days on how we will deal with um, climate risk in the U.S. economy. Now, uh, that's incredibly important uh, because the FSOC coordinates what is essentially an alphabet soup of agencies that are tasked with maintaining the integrity of the financial system, all of whom have, as it's been described to me, potentially biblical powers when it comes to reining in climate risk and reducing the flow of money to fossil fuels or other speculative activities largely due to the legislative authority uh, given to them by Dodd-Frank. And so theoretically, this executive order will um, empower Treasury Secretary Yellen to pull together those agencies, develop a report which would ideally outline a plan of action for maintaining the integrity of the system so that we can avoid the next climate-driven financial meltdown, the next, you know, 2008-2009 financial meltdown driven by what would largely be speculative investments in fossil fuels and the impacts of climate change today. Biblical powers. Catherine, how will the Biden team direct the hand of God? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, when Janet Yellen does like a tweet Twitter thread, I'm impressed. You know, she's talking about working through this FSOC group um, to understand and mitigate the risks that climate changes change poses to the stability of financial system and the macro economy and how to work both domestically and internationally to increase the availability of consistent, comparable and reliable information, which is crucial to make sure everybody is operating with the same statistics and to coordinate approaches among regulatory agencies. I mean, Biden has been doing this all along is to take a whole of government approach. And she's kind of the one who's going to be organizing this. But every agency is going to be involved in some way to make sure that the transition takes all of this risk into account. Yeah. So what we know is that the Federal Insurance Office will probably draft an order. Again, this is coming from Politico's reporting, so I'm just outlining what they said is in this draft order. The Federal Insurance Office office will identify major disruptions in private insurance co- uh, coverage in areas exposed to climate risk, mostly flooding in this country. Um, the Labor Department will make it easier for voters to vote on shareholder um, efforts related to ESG, to environmental, social and governance resolutions. Yeah, the social cost of carbon, which is right now set at $51 a metric ton, is supposed to be raised, too. Yeah. What else is in here, Justin, that jumps out at you? I think the other big thing that jumps out at me uh, pleasantly is the attention paid to U.S. thrift, which is the federal pension fund for federal employees. um, And it's The reporting says that uh, they are directing that fund to consider whether or not 
continued investment in fossil fuel securities is wise given all of the changes around us, which is theoretically uh, a precursor to divestment, which is you know very much a different approach than uh, disclosure of risk and the reliance on self-regulation and enlightened rational decisions by financial institutions. They've also, we've talked about this before, Stephen, on home ownership, which is, you know, all of the this national flood insurance program, which is being overhauled to really address the considerations of homeowners in those zones and to expand those. And then, you know, 80% of U.S. homeowners have government-backed mortgages, and those are going to be more difficult if underwriting gets tightened. So they're trying to figure out how do they integrate climate-related financial risk into the underwriting standards. So when we talked about the theoretical approach to climate risk, some of our listeners said, I think you guys are overselling this a little bit. But when I look at the totality of what the Biden team is going to be proposing or uh, putting together, this seems pretty impactful to me. Now, I'm not an expert here, but taken together, this feels like it's pretty important. How do you read it, Justin? Yeah, I I think that it has the potential to be very important. So there's a couple of things. One is that the breadth of all of those pieces that will be included in the order, I think, is impressive. It's much more than simply saying companies must disclose their climate risk, which I think is something that some were worried uh, it might focus on because so much of the conversation up till now has been focused exclusively on disclosure as a means to an end. But what disclosure does is just tell us the scale of the problem. It doesn't create a plan of action. It doesn't tell us what to do about the problem. And so I think the the piece of this that is the most important, where this lives or dies, will be what Yellen produces at the end of those 180 days, what FSOC comes back with, which should be a very aggressive plan of action for limiting the systemic risks to the financial system from continued speculative investments in fossil fuels and the climate impacts we're already experiencing that are you know, destabilizing asset prices as well as those we will experience in the future. And so you know, what I uh, expect and what I have been hearing is that you know, it's not by accident that that whole breadth of things is in the executive order. And it's not by accident that uh, they're asking Secretary Yellen to produce a plan of action or a report, depends on the language, the ultimate language, um, which means to me that they understand that we need to move beyond disclosure, that disclosure alone is, you know, a bridge to nowhere. Um, disclosure needs to be a bridge to a plan. Uh, and so that is what gets exciting and interesting, but the devil will be in those details and we don't have those details. They won't well, they also won't be in the executive order. They will be in the plan that Yellen produces in 180 days, which gives us, I think, an important window of opportunity um, for organizing the community, for understanding what they could do. So that's all to say that I will, as many will, be waiting with bated breath for those details because they're going to be extremely important. So I'm super interested in seeing how corporates are actually going to play in this too. I could see some peer pressure here. And for example, Apple, Arvin Gannison released a statement and then Lisa Jackson amplified it through Twitter that says basically disclosure is an important tool in the fight against climate change. They have been doing this for a decade now and they believe the SEC should issue the rules to require that companies disclose third-party third-party audited emissions information to the public with all scopes of emissions, direct, indirect, the value chain, all three scopes, and that Apple believes that this is really important um, from to look at the full life cycle of their products and then come up with their climate strategy and targets. So it'll be interesting to see just how a disclosure plan would then lead to real corporate action. Yeah, that feels tangible to me and important that a company like Apple is talking about that publicly. But my guess is that Justin thinks that that's just one small piece of it. So how does that feed into the plan that you're talking about, Justin? What would you want to see in a plan? Now, earlier in the episode, I think you referenced Dodd-Frank. This is the um, Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act that was passed in 2010 after the financial crisis. What are the powers the government has that we may not be exercising related to this issue? Yeah. So first, I want to say that uh, I don't want to belittle or dismiss disclosure. It is a fundamental precursor to action. I think the, the main issue that I'm trying to raise is that it is not an end in and of itself. 
So I want to say that I think it is an incredibly important first step. It absolutely needs to be a part of that plan. It just needs to not be the end of that plan. So if that's the kind of starting gun, that's the first place that we start, where where could we go? I think the very other end of that spectrum would be what would be called credit guidance, which is literally the government saying you can or can't lend to certain things because they potentially destabilize the financial system as a whole. And so you could imagine in a very aggressive scenario using that logic and the powers that are already passed by Congress that don't require Senator Manchin to bestow us with his wisdom and virtue, that the president of the United States, the treasury secretary could say, this stuff is really risky. It's a huge problem. We're going to start to curtail those activities today. So, you know, essentially that's the kind of other end of that spectrum. But there's also a million different things they could do on that road that would have significant impacts and would significantly disincentivize banks from lending to harmful activities today. So to give you a few examples, we could say, the the Fed could say, for instance, to banks, we will no longer accept as collateral when you come to us to refinance coal-backed securities or oil and gas-backed securities. That would be a disincentive for banks to hold those securities. And obviously, um, that can have a fairly powerful impact on what they decide to lend to or not lend to. Another thing that regulators could do is say, because we think these types of activities are particularly risky, you need to hold more capital if you're going to be engaged in them. And that's another strong disincentive because every dollar a bank needs to sit on is a dollar that's not out in the economy making them money. Uh, So there's a bunch of different steps like that that frankly can have a very powerful impact on what these institutions are incentivized to do or not do. But I think it's really important for us to remember that that, again, relies on a set of logic that believes that, you know, we should at some level be deferential to market actors, either incentivize them or disincentivize them or uh, assume that more and better information will change their behavior. But frankly, the regulators and the administration have the power to say, we will mandate it, we will make it so. And so I think it's important that we understand that full gamut of power because any plan that comes out and says disclosure, you know, we're going to disclose and pray our way to solutions to climate change is really, frankly, just so not living up to the moment, not living up to the, you know, time we're in, um, particularly when they have all of these powers that Congress has already given them that are, frankly, meant to avoid the same situation that we found ourselves in in 2008 and 2009. So last question on this. Uh, I'm just, I want to get your take on how you feel about the moment. At the beginning of last year, I interviewed your colleague, Diana Best, who's a finance strategist at the Sunrise Project. And she had been very active on this campaign to pressure BlackRock on ESG issues and on climate risk. And Larry Fink even nodded in his letter last year, explaining to investors why climate is going to be an important part of their money management strategy. He alluded to the fact that people are in the streets protesting financial institutions and that there's these social pressure campaigns. And it feels like even some of the most powerful people in this industry are starting to respond to that. Meanwhile, you have organizations that are managing trillions of dollars in investments that are divesting from fossil fuels because of the nearly decade-long divestment campaign. Banks are obviously trying to step up and prove their (laughs) social worth by talking a lot about their climate strategies. Like, there's a lot happening here. And and then, uh, meanwhile, you have the Biden team that's saying, here are the specific policy proposals we want to put in place to actually lower climate risks in the financial markets. So that feels like all really good stuff. You have been focused on this for a long time. Like, how do you take this in totality? Do you feel like there's legitimate positive momentum here? Absolutely. I mean, I think across the board on climate, we have seen a sea change in the politics of the issue and in the power of the climate movement to not only demand change, but make it happen. Um, That's not just exclusive to finance. I think you see that across the board. I think you see it in the approach the Biden team has taken and the, frankly, pleasant surprise most in the climate community have had at his 
his comfort level with being aggressive on climate change. I think it's much further than most had expected uh, in a good way. So I do think we're in a different moment. I do think that we have a huge opportunity. I do think there's a big amount of momentum. The thing that worries me, the thing that keeps me up at night is us squandering that opportunity or squandering that power by not paying attention to the details, by not asking for what's necessary, not what's possible. And I think the other thing that worries me is that we have spent so long with a set of invisible chains over our strategic horizon, over what is theoretically possible, that we're in a moment where the kind of snow globe of action has been shaken up and no one quite knows where all the snow will fall. And I think we don't yet know, and we're like grasping for that boundary to kind of resettle and say, okay, that's that's how far we can push. But I actually think the boundary doesn't really exist, particularly in the financial space and in, with financial regulation. It's so new, it's so nascent, it's, it's not really there. And so the thing that worries me is that we squander this moment by not actually pushing even further than we think is possible um, because we haven't really come to terms with the fact that things have fundamentally changed in so many ways. So all to say, yes, huge opportunity. The thing I worry most about is actually our own side, not recognizing how much the politics have changed and how much space we have to operate today. So then how do we think about the impact of regulation? Because if you listen to a lot of these powerful people in finance, they're saying the market will take care of it. We, we're taking this very seriously. And certainly there's a lot of momentum and regulation is very slow. So if regulation is slow and the market is changing, why do we need way more regulation? Great question. I think that we have to realize that there are fundamental limits uh, when it comes to voluntary corporate action. We're going to need regulation to solve climate change across the board, and finance is no different. I think you you put your finger, though, on probably the most important variable in the climate equation, which is time. And it's the one thing we can't make more of. It's the one thing we're running out of fast, faster than anything else. Uh, and so all of our strategies, all of our interventions have to be filtered through that fundamental variable. And if they don't stack up, then we need to rethink what we're doing because we don't have time and that it's the most important thing. Um, the way I think about regulation, it definitely is a very long process. It's not something that happens overnight. And I think a big part of the fundamental logic for activists that have decided to target the financial system is that one thing that is true about financial markets and markets generally is that they can move fast, often concentrated so that when they move, most actors move in a pack. And that is a big part of the appeal. If we can shift some of the biggest financial institutions on earth, they will move and they'll move quickly. Um, but as we've seen from bank lending since Paris, they're not gonna go as far as they need to go unless they have the credible threat of regulation. And so I think the thing to remember is that we need regulation. Uh, we also need voluntary corporate action, but we need regulation that is credible, that it will come at some point in the future, even if it's not gonna come tomorrow because financial institutions have to plan across administrations, across political swings. And if they believe fundamentally that one day we will regulate the speculative investment in fossil fuels because we think it fundamentally undermines our financial system, then they're going to start shifting today. That credible threat tomorrow pulls forward action today. And so you start to get essentially a, uh, you start to get a virtuous cycle where the credible threat of regulation tomorrow forces voluntary action today Voluntary action today creates political space for regulators to go further than they otherwise might, and you start to accelerate change. And so I think that the important way to think about this is that neither of those things by themselves will get us to where we need to go. We need both, but right now we don't have any regulation. And so that's why we're particularly excited about the upcoming executive order from Team Biden. Let's finish with a view of how this is going to play out on the world stage. Among the many executive orders issued by Biden in recent months is an international climate finance plan. The gist is that it will phase out lending to carbon intensive energy and ramp up lending to carbon free energy. The details were released as part of the White House's big climate event on Earth Day. Now, that event didn't bring many new emissions commitments, but South Korea did say it would end coal financing. And it's increasingly looking like China is going to be the lender of last resort for coal. So what is current U.S. policy 
And will it create momentum around the world for government fossil fuel divestments? Uh, Catherine, what is this executive order? Yeah, it's the U.S. International Climate Finance Plan. And it lays out the case for why you be you should be doing international climate finance, which is really um, mobilizing financial resources to assist emerging economies to avoid emissions and to build resilience and adapt in you know throughout all economies. So the case for it is really you know this could unlock reductions in other countries emissions that this could help move technologies in the US out to those countries it could increase trust in the US which is going to be hugely important given what happened during the last administration um it's considered an investment in our own security you know part of what we want out of other countries in, in any any international development goal is to reduce poverty, expand energy access, um, conserve nature, you know, reduce discrimination, improve human health, um, safeguard feud security, et cetera. And climate change puts all of those at risk. So we have to start focusing more on how do we really engage internationally. And what this plan does is, again, it takes a whole of government approach. And it says there will be five main areas. One is scaling up climate finance and enhancing its impact with all of those financial institutions that we have access to in the U.S., mobilizing private sector finance, you know, making sure that we are partnering with the private sector, taking steps to end international official financing for carbon-intensive fossil fuel-based energy, so really putting pressure not to invest in fossil fuel. And they hedge a little bit on that, but, you know, because you can't just dry up immediately, but but there is a pathway for that. Um, making capital flows consistent with low emission climate resilient pathways. And this is also aligning with Paris. And then defining, measuring, and reporting on the U.S. public climate finance. So it really is a whole of government approach. It brings in all of those organizations, whether it's XM Bank or the National Security Council or the U.S. Trade and Development Corporation, USAID, um, what used to be OPIC, which is the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, which is now called the Development Finance Corporation, DFC, um, and all the multilateral development banks in which we are involved and engaged. So how is this different, Justin. We started to see, you know, the, the U.S. Export-Import Bank and the Overseas Private Investment Corporation under the Obama team start to ramp up some lending um, in clean energy. But what a lot of people don't realize is that there was a lot of financing of fossil fuel plants through the Obama administration through just the Export-Import Bank. And I think you know, we got, what, $90 billion for clean energy through the stimulus, and the Obama team invested, or the, the Obama administration through the Exim Bank supported $35 billion in fossil fuel projects. So, like, this is a very big deal. And uh, we can get all of our domestic policies squared away, but we can still be supporting dozens and dozens of extremely polluting projects overseas. So how does this change current government policy and like what in what Catherine outlined sticks out to you as really important? So I think the point about restricting lending to carbon intensive infrastructure is the thing that everybody has been focused on and has been heavily anticipated. I think what the administration has done is essentially expand uh, the coal restrictions that were announced under the Obama administration to oil and gas. And so while the wording is fairly vague and they need to be much more explicit about the details of what this covers, you know, it's my understanding that what they're saying to the world is we're done financing fossil fuels. Now, there are some uh, loopholes. You know, they have given themselves the ability to finance some projects in certain rare instances. Frankly, that was the exact same language that the Obama administration used for coal as well. And the history of these things is that they start uh, with some loopholes, but what you're really doing is sending a very important and powerful political signal that we're done, and those loopholes get closed over time. So, you know, I think the activist community, the climate community is really focused on getting clear definitions of what is carbon intensive. They're really focused on making sure there are no loopholes at all, but if they're going to be some that we, you know, close them down again over time. Um, so that I think is a really big deal. You know, Biden has basically expanded that set of criteria to oil and gas. I think the other important thing that they have in that plan is that they, they use the words explicitly that they will spearhead efforts 
at the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is essentially the club of developed nations, absent the only big country that matters that's not there is China. And what they've said is that we will spearhead efforts to establish restrictions on carbon intensive uh, industries and sectors. Again, read oil and gas, not just coal, so that we have a universal set of restrictions across all of those countries, not just the United States. And so that leadership uh, at the international level is really, really powerful. Um, that's one important piece. But the other important piece is that export credit agencies are these arcane institutions nobody knows about, nobody cares about, but they, as you said, Stephen, have huge amounts of money and they have the ability to unlock huge amounts of private money as well. And so what they would be doing by establishing a new sectoral agreement, a new sectoral arrangement on oil and gas is really turning off a very important source of finance for oil and gas around the world at exactly the time that, for instance, Asian countries are looking to build out a wave of new gas plants, a wave of new LNG import terminals to fuel those gas plants, which would mean all of that really capital-intensive infrastructure wouldn't be able to benefit from public money. And the thing to remember about public money is that, you know, the there's a bunch of different estimates, but some estimates by USAID say that $1 in public money can leverage $17 in private money, which means it's not the total amount that these institutions pony up for new infrastructure. It's their presence at all that unlocks other investment, other finance. And so if you take that bottom of the capital stack away, suddenly you're scaring off a bunch of private capital that wouldn't want to touch much of this infrastructure in politically risky parts of the world um, where they're worried they might not get paid back at all if there's no, you know, if there's no implicit guarantee or support from the public purse. So I think that's an incredibly important thing that um, the, the Biden administration is planning to do. And then the other thing I would point to is um, the point about disclosure and international leadership. To me, that reads as a down payment on the upcoming executive order because there's no way they can go credibly show up in international venues and talk about climate risk and mitigating climate risk if we don't have our own house in order here at home. And so I think that's a bit of a handshake that says, you know, this this next executive order is coming. We're going to get our own act in order so that we can then lead conversations and be a part of conversations with other countries around the world. This feels to me important because of what it is telling the world. And we have this yawning credibility gap right now in the U.S. And one of the reasons why a bunch of countries didn't just come to Biden's summit and come with all these new fresh targets is because nobody trusts the U.S. right now. And it's going to take years of diplomatic work to get people to to trust that our policy is going to be sustainable going forward. And and even then, I think there's going to be some worries about what happens after the, you know, when if Biden loses an election or what happens after his administration is over. And so if you can start to use this leverage with these agencies and lenders to show that we are making such a big structural change in our policy, it can only do good. So I feel like this can help close some of that credibility gap. Yeah. And if you think about the international community and the U.S. being part of that, you know, a lot of them are moving ahead regardless, right? So multilateral development banks, of which there are nine, there's the African Development Bank, Asian Development Bank, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, European Investment Bank, Inter-American Development Bank, Islamic Development Bank, New Development Bank, and World Bank Group. We're part of some of those. And these development banks are not on the hook to maximize profits. They're there to get things done and prioritize development goals. And they're all coming together to say, how do we align with the Paris goals? How do we make sure that we're really investing in climate infrastructure for low and middle income countries? They did in 2019, $62 billion worth of investment, 76% of which was for climate change mitigation finance and 24% adaptation finance. But those are really important. And if the U.S. is part of those, they're moving forward anyway. And if the U.S. plays as part of those, that's another way to help get back its credibility. Yeah, and I would just point out on multilateral development banks, the U.S. has an incredibly powerful position in most of those institutions. 
either as the largest shareholder or one of the largest shareholders. It's a big part of why the World Bank ended up announcing coal restrictions back in 2013. And the two that I would just want to point out um, are the Asian Development Bank, which has an energy policy review this year, is an incredibly important lender in the Asian region. And I think having the Biden administration say, we're going to flex our muscles in some of these institutions means that the ADB is not gonna get away with not having a coal, oil, or gas exclusion policy. So that's a really important implication of that otherwise you know, fairly generic language. I think the other one to keep in mind is the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. Uh, so the IMF is like the lender of last resort to all the countries who don't get to print their own money. Um, and so that's important in and of its own right. But the other thing the IMF does that we forget is that they provide really important policy advice to central banks around the world. And so it's highly likely that they will include climate in their upcoming um, macroeconomic five-year policy review, which would then give them the mandate to go talk with countries around the world, central banks around the world about transition risk and about climate risk, which is one of those kind of butterfly effects uh, coming off of the back of this plan, which I think, again, is, is really, really important because even as they have seen their overall influence wane as private financial institutions have grown and other public institutions have grown around them, they are nonetheless highly influential in many parts of the world, and they just haven't been talking about climate and transition risk or the need to limit investments in fossil fuels. So I do think that this is one of those pieces of that plan that is really not well understood, but hugely powerful for shifting a bunch of other institutions around the world. Yeah, I spoke with a woman that I work with at the World Economic Forum who's with the European Investment Bank, and, and they are there to try to deploy and maximize the European Green Deal, right? And they have become the first region, the European Union has become the first region to enjoy, endorse climate neutrality by 2050. And I would just reiterate what Justin said about not only is finance really important, but the advisory services that these folks provide are incredibly important. And they're looking at making sure that it's not just, say, 50% of what they do is green finance and the other 50% is garbage. They want it all aligned with the Paris Agreement. And they're planning to do that and make sure it, it, it is done through accelerating the transition through green finance, certainly, but also ensuring a just transition, building accountability in and supporting all of the operations of Paris. So you see these other institutions come in. And I think, as Justin says, the U.S. is enormously important in that world. So who's left, Justin? Is it is it going to be just China, basically, that's backing coal plants around the world? Yeah, so this was probably the best announcement that I saw last week uh, during the whole climate summit party which was the announcement from South Korea that they're going to end overseas coal finance. It was unequivocal. It's over. They are the number two or number three, I think the number three lender to overseas coal finance in the world. They've been that since I started working on this issue over a decade ago. Uh, ahead of them is Japan, and then number one is China. Uh, all signs from Japan are that they're next to go. They'll likely announce maybe the G7, um, which leaves China as the lender of last resort for coal. Not a particularly uh, positive title that you would want in 2021. Um, but the interesting thing is that all signs from China are that they're also getting out of the coal game. So they sent uh, their minister, their foreign ministry sent a letter to um, the government of Bangladesh, basically saying, "Don't ask us for money for coal anymore. We're not going to do it." Um, the People's Bank of China has been sending pretty blatant signals to the financial institutions it oversees that they should really stop financing coal plants. And the question is not really an if, it's a question of when. Um, but all eyes are very much on China because they're the only ones who haven't been pretty openly public about the need to get out of uh, coal investment. And I think you can't really underestimate the power of that because those three nations were probably responsible for nearly all of the new coal plant construction around the world um, outside of China's borders. So you, you turn that money off and you really turn off the last gasps of coal expansion around the world. And it then 
enables us to start focusing on the next problem, which is LNG and gas expansion across much of Asia. So the problems never end, um, but nonetheless, that's a that's a pretty powerful announcement from South Korea. Honestly, it's a really, really big deal. And I wanna give a shout out to um, Jujin Kim and Solutions for Our Climate. They're a group, an NGO in South Korea who's been working on this issue for the last four or five years. I would say more than any other a person or organization in the world, they are responsible for that announcement. They do amazing work. And I hope they get the Goldman Prize this, work, this year because it's a really, really big deal. Seven and a half years after you first came on the show, it feels like the world is a radically different place. Does it feel that way to you? It does. But in many ways, we face the exact same problems. And so, you know, unfortunately, the work never ends. But you, you got to take the wins when you get them. You got to stay positive. And I think that was a very good source of positivity. All right, it's time for free electrons. Uh, Catherine, what's yours this week? Yeah, so Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, may be facing a recall election, but the U.S. government is showing California some love. So the EPA said they will grant California the waiver that the Trump administration did not do to um, allow more strict climate requirements for cars and SUVs. Um, it's 13 states and the District of Columbia that had signed on to that. It's about 36% of the U.S. auto market. That is a big deal. At the same time, the Department of Transportation withdrew the Trump-era restrictions of tailpipe emission rules. Um, there's a public hearing on June the 2nd and public comments are due June the 6th. But um, this is great. The transportation sector is the largest contributor in the U.S. to greenhouse gases. And we're going to head in the right direction now. What's the cliche? So goes California, so goes the rest of the country. We saw that in Hyperdrive. Justin, what's your free electron? Yeah, so we spent the whole show focused on how we turn off money for the bad stuff. But I don't want to give the uh, perception or the illusion that we don't need to invest in the good stuff. Um, and I think the biggest issue for me is not the total amount of investment, but how we invest, because we need to be much smarter in how we use public money, for instance, um, and concessional money to unlock private money at scale. And so I, mine is um, the first ever floating solar plus storage project in Vietnam, which was invested in by the Southeast Asia Clean Energy Finance Facility, which was backed by a handful of foundations to explicitly provide project development finance, uh, project development support, so that we can jumpstart and prime the pump uh, for projects, clean energy projects in one of the last regions on earth where new coal plants are being built, new gas plants are being built and expanded so that we can get you know, a strong clean energy foothold. And so that CSEF facility has supported over a gigawatt of projects. This would take them up to 1.5 gigawatts of projects, um, which is a really cool uh, example of how public money, how concessional money can be used wisely. And I think that's really, really important because I think too much of the conversation is focused on just aggregate amounts, but actually it's how we spend the money, not just how much we have that really matters the most. So that thought that was a pretty cool story. And we love photovoltaics. <laughs> yeah, you're the second guest who's brought up photovoltaics in, in recent weeks. So I guess we're going to have to do a whole show on floating solar. I saw on Monday that Epicurious, I don't know if you read Epicurious, it's a really famous recipe site. They said they are going to stop publishing recipes with beef in it. And they laid out a very clear climate case saying that they are not anti-beef, they're pro-planet. And it was one of the best articulations of the like the, the 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 climate impact of beef and agriculture and why they would make a decision. And what was interesting is that it did get blowback on social media, expected blowback, but there were no major chefs who came out and criticized it, which which is I think an indication that like so many people in the food world recognize that like it needs to be more sustainable and they need to use different ingredients and I just think that the lack of criticism from the broader uh, restaurant world was as interesting as the announcement itself. And I'm a big believer that when we really start to grapple with climate change, it's going to be the little changes we notice that will indicate 
how much society is shifting. And I think that this latest decision from Epicurus is an example of that. A really small move, but something that indicates a much wider shift in the world of food and in culture generally. That's great. I've been a vegetarian for 25 years at least. Um, But did you see that there was a lot of misinformation about how the Biden plan would prevent everybody from eating hamburgers, which I thought was ridiculous. But. Well, Larry Kudlow on Fox News said that he, uh, Biden was going to make everybody drink plant-based beer. And I just, I guess, I guess Larry doesn't, I guess Larry doesn't know where beer comes from. (laughs) Isn't it already (laughs) plant-based? I hereby pledge, I hereby pledge to cut down my consumption of meat beer. I promise. I'm I'm only drinking impossible beer. (laughs) Justin, thanks for being here. Really good to see you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, guys. Justin Gway is the Director of Global Climate Strategy at the Sunrise Project. Catherine, good to see you. Great to see you. So exciting to have Justin here. Catherine Hamilton's my co-host. I am Stephen Lacey. We are a production of Postscript Audio. Sean Marquand edited and mixed the show and composed our theme. Uh, you can find us anywhere you get podcasts of course and give us a rating and review it helps others find the show and hit us up on social media if you want to comment on this episode or you just want to suggest topics generally i say this all the time but we look at every message we don't often get to respond to them i personally am terrible at responding to messages but i do see everyone and they your messages greatly inform how we cover topics so please send them along and thanks a lot for interacting with us and being with us We will catch you next week. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. 